This episode is brought to you by Evermill. Evermill makes the world's most elegant spice rack that features text to refill organic spices in compostable packets, as well as a suite of kitchen products that help you cook so you can focus on sharing meals with the ones you love. This episode is brought to you by Equipped. Equipped is a modern luxury fitness brand that creates stylish, compact, portable, and versatile fitness equipment that will inspire you to move anytime, anywhere, whether you have half a minute or half an hour. Stay tuned for some special offers from our amazing sponsors exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 135, and today I sat down with Eunice Bian, the co-founder and CEO of Material. If you're looking to upgrade your knives, cutting boards, cookware, tools, or really anything you need to prepare a delicious meal, Material designs and manufactures kitchenware for the modern kitchen. Eunice and I talked about how she grew up in San Diego with parents who owned a Chinese restaurant, how she started out working for the school newspaper at Northwestern University, why she invested heavily in PR from day one after launching Material, what she did early on to build the brand instead of depending on just Facebook ads, and why it's important to align on what success looks like with investors in order to filter for the right ones. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, tell all your friends, and you can check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Hi, Eunice. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I'm excited to hear your story and building material such a cool name. And you're calling in from New York City right now, right? How's it going in New York? It's good. It is busy. It is. It's like the heartbeat of the city is back. So it feels good, but it's also, it's it's like crazy times again. So yeah. And it is, I think, you know, this will probably be published a little bit further along. So we are, it is September 29th, 2022. There's no heat wave there, right? I'm in Los Angeles and there's a heat wave here but you guys are done with those, I think. We are done. And it is, I think we're going to have those two weeks of fall and then all of a sudden it gets freezing cold. So right. um, just basking in the the l- slightly cooler temperatures. It's like perfect weather in New York for those two weeks. And then it's like, done. Sorry, see ya. Just kidding. <laughs> exactly. And like everyone looks their best in these two weeks and then it all falls apart. So. Right. It's like sweater weather. You're like, oh yeah, I have fall. Yes. Boots. I can bring out the boots. I don't have to wear a winter jacket and a hat yet. Exactly. Awesome. And so I know you mentioned you're from San Diego. What was it like growing up in San Diego as a kid? And what kind of kid were you? What did you want to be when you grew up? San Diego is an incredible place to grow up. 
I think I took a lot of it for granted, to be honest, because that was just your normal day to day. You know, you look outside, the sun is shining, you walk out, you don't ever need a jacket, but you just spent a lot of time, I think, being outside exploring. And that's something that I definitely don't see so much in New York, maybe the same way. And yeah, as a kid, I would say super, super just, you know, happy-go-lucky, you know, grew up actually surrounded by a lot of food because my parents uh, owned restaurants growing up. So um, spent a lot of time in the kitchen. They owned a Chinese restaurant, which is very funny to me because we're actually Korean, uh, but they uh, opened a Chinese restaurant and yeah, it was just incredible, I think, to see just all the energy that took place in the in the restaurant, in the kitchen. I think that's where really my love affair with the kitchen started. But other than that, I mean, riding a bike, roller skating, you know, hanging out with my sister, you know, and just I think just doing a lot of very, very like kid like things in San Diego. So you have a sister. Are you the oldest or the youngest? I'm the youngest. We're uh, about 24 months apart, but one grade. Oh, wow. Cool. So you had a sister and I guess you looked up to her. And what was the dynamic growing up? And in, in both of your parents, I guess, worked in the in the Chinese restaurants? Yeah. So my parents um, have always been small business owners. And I think some of that is is just being an immigrant family, you know, my, my dad actually studied engineering and my mom studied nutrition in Korea. And when they came here, they were going to continue on with schooling. And, uh, my grandfather actually was very entrepreneurial and he decided he wanted to get into the restaurant business. So my dad helped him and, uh, ended up staying in, in the small business world for, for a while. And yeah, I've always been really close with my sister. I mean, she's someone I've always looked up to. She's so creative. She's been, the one who was, you know, always drawing the best pictures and writing the best stories. And I just remember having a lot of envy over her many talents. And she always knew what she wanted to do, which is, I think, what I probably envied the most. Is she knew from a very early age she wanted to go into journalism. And when people would ask her what she wanted to do, she said, I want to be the next Connie Chung. And when people asked me what I wanted to do, it changed every single time. I mean, I truly, truly had no idea what I wanted to do or be when I was older. And so just having someone like her in my life has always been just an amazing constant because I just see how she takes her gifts and her talents and really funnels it into the work that she does. And I think that served as a great basis for me to figure out what what is that going to be for me? What is going to, you know, kind of light my fire, like how she's found it at such an early age? What what will that look like within my own life? And looking back now, are there moments where you're like, that was pretty entrepreneurial of me as a kid? Like, were you entrepreneurial at all? It's funny. I think people typically think of entrepreneurship and kids as setting up a lemonade stand and, you know, starting to hawk things right out of, you know, on the on the recess playground. And I think what I've realized is my uh, little spurts of entrepreneurship were more around imagination and seeing things that perhaps other people didn't see or witnessing patterns that other people didn't necessarily connect. And I think that was something that I always have done as, as a young kid, just recognizing you know people, behaviors, trying to understand what makes them tick and I think those are the things that really have helped me in entrepreneurship more so than kind of being the the playground hustler who is able to sell anything out of their backpack. No, I agree. I, I feel the same way. I'm very entrepreneurial, but I, I didn't like lemonade. So that didn't work for me. And, <laughs> you know, 
But what I did want to do is I wanted to, you know, have a do hip hip hop, learn hip hop. And so I created my own hip hop class and convinced some jazz teacher to teach it and then got all the students and rallied everybody to participate and pay $10 a class. And then I bargained and got my I said, I, I'm going to go for free because I'm bringing you all these you know customers for your class. So, yeah, I think that entrepreneurship can come in different forms, shapes and sizes. And I think it's all about almost like creative problem solving. Yes, 100%. And I think for me, it was also almost this insatiable thirst for being able to learn stuff, right? And being a quick learner and understanding, you know, if I wanted to try this, it's okay to try it. And maybe I'm good at it. Maybe I'm not good at it. And I think it's just that attitude that maybe is a little bit more innate that was something that I think looking back on it now, I could say, yeah, absolutely was there from an early age. Yeah. It's like a curiosity. Do you, yes. are you the type to, you have to scratch the itch or do you just ignore it? I can't ignore it. It depends. <laughs> you know, I think now as I'm getting older and I have two kids and I can't scratch every itch because then I would never sleep or <laughs> anything, but I love always learning new things and picking up new hobbies. I think that will always happen. Um, and once I step like into it, I fall deep into it. So I'm like, how often can I play tennis? You know, I get really obsessive about it. So that's the only thing um, I can't. That's why I can't scratch every itch, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your your bandwidth gets a little limited with little ones. Yes. <laughs> so what what happened from there? So you decided, you know, when you're a kid, you had this older sister and she knew what she wanted to be and you were st still trying to figure it out. What did you study in college and what were some of your first jobs? Yeah, I think what you'll you'll probably hear as we even walk through the early years is that me not knowing just meant me trying a lot of different things. So of course, my major was something very broad. Uh, I went to Northwestern and um, had a really cool major. It's called learning and organizational change. And it was just studying different frameworks of change and how do organizations adapt. And, you know, again, like a very, I think, appropriate major for just my interest and in being able to understand how things happen and what motivates and drives change. In terms of jobs, I'd say everything from, you know, helping out at my parents' restaurant to, I, were, I was one of those that worked at The Gap during high school and I loved it. Like that was yeah. um, such is the perfect- Retail glory days. Oh, totally. <laughs> I think I remember selling their fragrance line and I was in high school and it was fun. It was fun for me. I loved the process of like meeting people and figuring out what do they need help with? And it was almost like cracking a code of, you know, what is this person going to buy? Or yeah, or what would they like? What if they like this sweater and that this outfit that I put together? I was over next door at the at Express <laughs> yes, yes. working, and I love that. I remember this really tall woman walked in once in the dressing room, and like she was clearly a model. I don't know what she was doing in Delaware at this Christiana Mall, but she was in my store, and I was like, oh my god, I know the perfect jeans that will fit you. And I think someone had returned a pair of jeans that were like longer than most human beings, and I was like this. This will fit this woman. <laughs> and this is the perfect fit. They're here for her. So I sent them to her. She, she tried them on and loved them, you know, and it was like, oh my God, she's made my day. I was like, I just helped this person find what they needed. It was rewarding. Yeah. It is. And it's funny because that's, I mean, that's really ultimately what I feel like material is about, which, which I know we'll get to, but I, I too love that. Like, I love being able to say, 
what do people need? Maybe they can't articulate it. How, how can I unearth that within them and then help them? And so that they feel good about themselves or they feel they're just enjoying whatever the experience is more. So yeah, that was, that was gap and that was gap in its heyday. And then uh, what other things did I do? I mean, at, at Northwestern, I worked at the school newspaper. You know, I worked at my parents' friend pharmacy. I mean, it is like every odd end job that's out there. But I think the thing is, is I actually really liked working. You know, I was, I think I was always thankfully a, a good student, but I also loved working. Like I liked that there was, there, it wasn't like a lesson that needed to be learned or, or materials that needed to be read. It was like learning on the job. And I think I'm a very experiential person. So even, yeah, even from a young age, I feel like I always jumped headfirst into any job that I, that I had. And so what made you want to work at Goldman Sachs? What made you want to dive into (laughs) finance right out of school? Ignorance, maybe. (laughs) Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, I've, I've, I've shared this before. I, I feel like a little bit of someone whose head was a bit in the clouds because I, it's not like I knew what finance was, or I even was seeking out this finance job at a place like Goldman. It was just one door opening and me kind of walking through it. And I happened to meet someone who was mentoring one of the Northwestern leadership programs that I was a part of. And she happened to be a recruiter at Goldman. She's like, Hey, I really think you'd like it here. Um, why don't you just come in and talk to us? And I kid you not, I, I didn't know anything about finance. I wasn't even taking econ classes. I didn't quite like math. And I think it was just something where they identified within me just the sense of I I like learning and I want to try and get better at things. And I, you know, now knowing what I know about the company, I think they do just look for people who are good at what they do, regardless of whether or not it actually is a part of the financial world. So I was like, why not? Well, I'm going to try it. I interned there and then I applied for a full-time job and I really did love it. I loved the people. I loved all of the things that I learned there in terms of just being able to talk to really successful people and find the inner confidence to kind of hold my ground at a really young age or um, just to pay very, very careful attention to detail and being kind of meticulous about the work being done. I loved all that. But I think I quickly realized like, I don't love the financial markets. I don't love reading the Wall Street Journal. I don't love, you know, talking about the the stock market and where I think it's going. Like those things didn't excite me. And that's when I realized I'm going to stay here, you know, for the for the analyst program and then see where I can go next and I ended up in intimate apparel of all places, but I think Goldman served as just a really good foundation for my career because it just instilled a lot of really great skills, I think, that I could take with me wherever I went next. That's awesome. And so you were there for about t- two years or so, and then you went to Maiden Form. What was it like at Maiden Form? It was uh, so different than Goldman. Um, yeah, that's, you know, that's quite a shift. You know? <laughs> yeah, it was. The, the subject material was very different, uh, but also just the infrastructure, the culture. I mean, everything was so different. And I just remember, you know, at Goldman, there's a little bit more of a transient nature to it because people come in as an analyst and they might leave like I did. And at Maiden Form, people were lifers. They were people that were there for like 20 years. And I loved it because I had this really unique role where I reported directly to the CEO and was basically incubating new businesses. 
And it was really, I think, the first time that I realized you can take something that you dream up in your head, you know, test it, do some research, and then actually launch it. And I was able to do that with an intimate apparel line for juniors because Made in Form was kind of perceived to be your grandmother's brand uh, or exploring the shaper category. So just really kind of coming up with different ideas and figuring out how to deploy them. And that was my first taste, I think, of entrepreneurship in a more conventional sense. But it was great. I mean, I was there for over five years and I learned so much about operating a business. And when I really look back on like what has helped us at Material, it's, I think, the experience I had at Maidenform because you do everything from, you know, forecasting to understanding what a PL is and how to utilize it and marketing and merchandising and design and just having your hands in all those things really at an operating level, I think has made me just a, a more informed entrepreneur more than anything else. Absolutely. That sounds like a really good experience. It's not very, I think, normal that you get to have that kind of experience in a bigger company, but it's always awesome when I hear that, that and actually a lot of founders on the show have had similar job opportunities where they're in these roles as a GM or something, and they're seeing all aspects of a business and it makes them really excited and it's inspiring and helps them build their own business. Yeah. Cause I think you understand how the parts go together. And that's sometimes the hard thing when you really specialize early on is, is knowing how everything is intertwined and, and working together. So being able to see that and experience it firsthand was absolutely invaluable. And from there, why did you end up kind of changing from made in form on to the next? It was right after the stock market crashed in, I guess, 20, 2008. And 2010, two years later, and just seeing e-commerce really emerge. And this was by the time, by the way, when all the brands were just using e-commerce as basically liquidation channels. They're like, oh, too much inventory. We're just going to push it out online. And I think you were starting to see brands like Gilt really pop up. And in New York, you know, starting to hear a little bit about Warby. I think it was still probably the early days, but you were just starting to hear a little bit more about this e-commerce space and um, people making bets on it. And I remember thinking, if I don't learn about it now, uh, like when will I? So let me just jump feet first into this. And I had a a friend who was going to help the former founder of Philosophy, the beauty brand, start her her, her new venture. And I said, great, going in, a, getting another ground floor, really understanding what it is like as employee number two would be a really great experience. And so, yeah, it was nothing more than that, just being able to kind of learn from someone who had built this incredible business and philosophy before, and then venturing deeper into the the digital world. And so that brand where you were employee number two is called Archetype, right? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So that's the beauty brand that your friend was starting. And so you got in early because you knew who the founder was. Yeah. And it was actually, it was very much ahead of a time. It's time, I think, but it was actually, you know, out of the beauty space and more in kind of the commerce content community world. So it was kind of trying to create different personality uh, profiles and filtering the internet through those profiles. So it was almost like I'm taking the black box that is the Facebook algorithm and just letting people understand like how are we filtering things and and actually delivering it to you. So that that should be it's a whole own podcast because there that was a very interesting place to be. <laughs> and I learned a lot of sometimes 
in regards like also like what not to do through that experience. So it looks like when looking on your, you know, your whole resume and your background, you landed at Revlon and that was mostly for global digital marketing. It sounds like you kind of got your, you sharpened your teeth in the digital marketing world. And then you got this great role at Revlon. Tell us about that. There were, I guess, some personal things in there in that I had my first daughter and was trying to figure out, like, do I want to stay in the startup world or do I want to go back into what I would say is corporate America? And I had a couple of bad experiences with some male founders that could not process or comprehend that I was a mother of a young child. And it just left such a bad taste in my mouth that I remember being like, this is what am, what am I doing? Like, why am I trying to convince someone that I'm capable of the role when they know that I have, you know, a six month old back home? And it, it just, it really, I think motivated me to say at some point in my life, I'm going to have my own company because I don't want to have to deal with people like this. And so I thought, why don't I go to corporate America and beauty? I think is a, obviously a great place because it is very much made up of a lot of women in the industry. And they had an opportunity to bring in someone to spearhead digital, which they actually had not done yet at Revlon. And so again, for me, while it was a big company, it was a very entrepreneurial role because it was building out a whole new digital program and organization. And so it was, it was great, but it was also during the time in which my co-founder Dave and I had started talking about material. So it was, it was a little bit of like moonlighting too. I feel like I was learning on the job at Revlon about the intricacies of like how beauty goes viral and kind of storing that away and packing it like off to the side and thinking about how that could potentially translate into what ultimately became material. What was the kind of aha moment or, you know, how did you come up with the idea for material in the first place? And then how did you meet your co-founder, David? Yeah. So um, I'll start with Dave because I've known him for a long time. We um, met really early on when we both moved to New York and we're both from Southern California. We both love food. We love design. He came from the luxury fashion world and we just loved going to different restaurants and trying them out and just always, always, always talking about like what was next and you know where we wanted to go and what we wanted to try. I think where material came from was personally for me, I had just had my, my older daughter, as I mentioned, and I remember going through this moment of, okay, I got to clear out space in my kitchen because she has actually so much more stuff than you would think a little baby would need space for. And, and there were still things left in their boxes from my wedding registry and just all, you know, it's like that one time where everyone's like, oh, these are the things you need to buy for your kitchen. And I remember being like, why do I have so much stuff that everyone says is like the must haves? But yet I've never touched them. I've never, they're like unopened in my place. And I remember thinking, that's so strange because I am starting to cook more. I love it. And yet I keep going back to these, you know, certain tools or pieces within my kitchen. And I just wish they were like a little bit better. I just wish they weren't such eyesores. I just wish they weren't so functional, but that ultimately they had a little bit more personality to them, just something that made me love them even more. And I think. Dave was feeling really similar because he uh, was living with his brother, who's a classically trained pastry chef. And he's like, God, why is everything so expensive? His brother's like, don't touch that knife. You can use that. You can't do that. And I think we both kind of came at it really separately, but realizing, gosh, there's this real empty space for well-made kind of high quality things for the kitchen and really for this more 
modern home cook. So someone who didn't want to have the whole kit and caboodle, but wanted something that was edited, something that was curated for them. And I think we we felt like we could bring a little bit of the beauty and the fashion world into the kitchen and make it a bit more lifestyle, a bit more something like a, a place that and a, and a group and a brand that you wanted to be a part of, as opposed to just, hey, here's this knife and it's so great because, you know, you can get it 40% cheaper than if you were to go through like a, a traditional channel. We didn't want to take just that approach. We really felt like the experience and the needs of the home cook has shifted. So we wanted to meet that that kind of new era. That's awesome. And so at what point were you like, okay, this is the person I want to go build this with? And what were the first kind of steps that you guys took to make it official? Gosh, we have been friends for so long that I think the basis of our even thinking about it was honesty, just nothing kind of going left unsaid. And that's something that I just really always will say I respect about being in business with my my um, my friend Dave is we just are open and honest with each other, probably to a fault. But I think I had heard so many war stories of just people breaking up with their co-founders and, you know, there being a lot of just negativity and personal relationships that were really broken because of going into business with one another. And I remember very early on saying, I don't want that to happen. And him obviously echoing that and us recognizing we needed to be really crystal clear with one another. So the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, you know, sharing in each other's triumphs together, but also like calling each other on stuff and being like, hey, I didn't like it when you did this because it made me feel this way, right? And airing out, I think, some of those insecurities really early on when you don't really know what you're doing or what you're building or what risks you want to take together. I think just being brutally honest with each other, even if it meant us saying, hey, like I need a day, I need a day just to kind of not, you know, like we might've just gotten into it one day and and giving ourselves a little bit of the space to say, that's okay. That's okay. We at least got what we wanted to say out there and now we can figure out how to move on together. And it was, I think that's really what it took for us to recognize, like we can transition from just a, this personal friendship that we had and really evolve it into more of a professional relationship. You know, everybody says that co-founder relationships are almost like a marriage, but I feel like, you know, why can't we just all have relationships that are like marriages, mm, you know, mm, <laughs> like, why does it have to be true. called a marriage? Isn't a marriage just a, a relationship that is like committed and dedicated to making it work? And shouldn't we have those kind of relationships with everybody that we're friends with, you know? Totally. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and it's one also where there's just mutual respect, right? for what the person is bringing to the table. And I think that's also the best thing about the two of us. We are polar opposites in so many regards. And I always say he's the yin to my yang because the things he loves to do, I'm like, uh, please, no, I don't want to do that and vice versa. So it just, it works out nicely because we inherently also um, balance each other out. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. When was the last time you looked in your spice drawer? If you're like me, you probably have to look at it every time you cook, which is a lot. And it looks like a complete disaster. Different size seasonings, different brands, it's a mess and totally uninspiring. That's until I discovered Evermill, the most beautiful and inspiring spice rack I've ever seen. And it looks gorgeous both on your countertop for everyone to see and compliment, or it looks great in your spice drawer too. Not to mention, they send you refills in compostable packets that you can get delivered 
delivered straight to your door simply by sending a text message. So if you're looking for an amazing gift idea, you have to check it out. They also just released two new products, a white marble salt well and an aluminum pepper mill, perfect for the person who you think has everything. You can get 15% off by using the promo code STAIRWAY15 on evermill.com. That's 15% off site-wide for the first time ever using the code STAIRWAY15 at evermill.com. Do you struggle to find time to go to the gym or even just work out at home somehow? What about the ugly weights you're probably hiding in your closet or under your bed? Out of sight, out of mind. Am I right? Meet Equipped, a female-founded luxury fitness brand with a no-pressure approach to movement that creates gorgeous weights that look so good, you can place their U-shaped weight called the U-bar on your coffee table and your friends will probably think it's a new art piece. Or if you're on the go, just throw on their U-wrap super stylish vegan leather ankle weights so that you can get a little workout in while running your errands in style. Featured in everything from Vogue to the Financial Times, Equipped makes it easier to move through life. And if you're looking for a great gift idea this holiday season, you can get 20% off on EquippedMovement.com using the promo code STAIRWAY20. That's 20% off luxury fitness equipment using the code STAIRWAY20 on EquippedMovement.com. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. What were, so when you guys decided this is what we want to do, we see the void, we want to go do it. What were some of the steps that you took to get it off the ground? And what were some of the things that you did to validate that this is something that other people wanted? It wasn't just kind of a fun idea. It was something that you had a few data points around now that pointed to both of you to say, let's keep going. There's something here. Yeah. I think we we started with two things. One, we just started thinking about the brand, right? Like what is, what's the name? What do we want it to feel like? Could we envision it being something that would get other people intrigued? And the second thing was starting immediately with product design. And I think because both of us love design and, and we felt really strongly that we didn't want to just be a company where the brand was all the splash and then you get the product and you're like, eh, okay. Right. You know, we didn't want to have that experience. We really wanted to make sure that the product, if anything, like over delivered and you're like, oh my God, like I thought I was getting something good, but I got something amazing. Right. So we knew that meant we had to start with industrial design and that's not in either of our skill sets. And so we started just kind of scouring LinkedIn and looking at all these portfolios and just reaching out to designers and saying, here's our vision. What do you think? We got so many people who just didn't respond. (laughs) And then some people who actually wrote back and were like, oh, you know, I just don't think you can do it. I don't think you can actually sell this stuff online. And we had one person who actually wrote back and said, this is, this is oddly like so ludicrous to me. I just want to meet you guys because I'm intrigued by why you think someone would want to buy knives and pots and pans and all this stuff online. Like, why would they not want to feel it? And so we met and we convinced him and we just said, Hey, let's start, you know, actually designing parts of the collection together. And let's, let's explore this together because you're such a doubter. It's actually going to help us be smarter in how we design things because we know that we're going to have to overcome this hurdle that other people might have. And so that's really how we started. We didn't even think about 
a business plan, financing it. We're like, we've got to build almost the secret sauce first to make sure that we can then take that to people and say, does this excite you like it excites us? And that's how we started. And we started sharing some of it with friends who were really avid home cooks and saying, what are we missing? What would you want in your initial collection? You know, help us think through some of this. And then we started thinking about how we were going to finance it. And I remember this was one of the biggest intersecting roads where we had to kind of decide which path do we want to go on. And, you know, initially I was of the mindset of, I just want to self-fund this. I don't want anyone like mixing up their thoughts and beliefs of what we need to be doing and muddying the waters. And Dave's like, well, this is his, his greatest strength. He's like, let's, let's talk to some people. Let's just see what's out there. And we ended up meeting someone who actually led our pre-seed round and he sits on our board today and he's just been with us from day zero and an incredible, incredible advisor, investor, really understood what this category could be. And yeah, I mean, that's really what got the ball rolling. And we were both, I think Dave might've just left his job at Chanel at the time and I was still working at Revlon. And when we got the the term sheet, I just remember the investor saying, okay, Eunice, now you have to quit now. Like you can't keep working at Revlon. It's time. Like you need to go and you need to start building material. And that was at the end of 2017. And then we officially launched in 2018. And so what was the launch like? Because I feel like a lot of founders, they're like, we're going to launch and everybody's going to find out about us. And we're going to sell out right away. And then they, you know, I feel like there's this misconception of building a website and showcasing your stuff. And then all of a sudden people will find you. But obviously you had a digital marketing background. So you probably didn't think that at all. But I'm just curious, what did you guys do to prepare for launch? How did launch go? And um, yeah, how'd it go? Yeah, well, you know, we... I think smartly did a bit of a beta first. So we just tried to iron out all the kinks by having friends and family place orders, you know, receive the things, see how the packaging worked. Cause we, we launched with seven items um, that made up our first collection called the fundamentals. So it wasn't just sending one item. It was truly sending like seven fully formed products um, and finding a way to package that all efficiently and get it to people without anything breaking So we just did a friends and family soft launch. We invested most heavily in PR from day one. And I think that's probably one of the smartest decisions we made. And I think the world has changed now. I know the world has changed now where it's, it's the PR universe looks very different, but back then in, in 2018, you know, being able to get, I don't know, a dozen publications to write about your launch and, you know, talk about the products and everything from Arc Digest to Vogue to Bon Appetit to Forbes and Fast Company. I mean, that made for a really splashy launch where we were able to, I think, recognize the power of voice in our marketing strategy. And it wasn't just about coming up with a really clever paid ad campaign. It was letting other people kind of use their platform to be our mouthpiece. And that's how we launched. And it took us a little bit, I think, to figure out what to do next because we had had this amazing, you know, launch and and people wanting to know more about us. And then, you know, you almost plan to like the launch and then you're like, okay, now that we launched, like what next? <laughs> like, what are we supposed to do? It's almost like, what do you do in episode two when you've been planning for episode one the whole time? And so I think it took us a little bit to kind of decide 
what direction we wanted to go in, but you know, we eventually got there. <laughs> That's awesome. And I remember before we hopped on here, we were talking about paid marketing and you know how a lot of I think D2C companies are putting so much money into Facebook and it's all about trying to perfect the perfect Facebook ad and test, test, test and try to make that wheel run. What are you mentioned that you learned early on that that wasn't working for you guys? You mentioned that PR is did work for you in the very beginning, but sustaining that over time, what were some of the things that you guys did from a marketing perspective? So for us, you know, like you said, we had heard from so many people, okay, so turn Facebook on and just start like plowing money through it. So we did, we tried it and it just didn't really work. I think part of it was, it was still such a new category in the space. Um, I think we also didn't really know how to talk about the things that really make us who we are as a company, um, because a lot of that is much more experiential and much more, in some regards, values-driven than a short little direct selling piece on products is going to communicate. And so we kind of quickly pivoted to just doing as much seeding, gifting, getting the product in people's hands. And again, going back to like letting other people talk about their experience, because we felt like that inherently was going to be more authentic than us trying to fabricate it and like replicate it and put that into a paid ad. And by this, you mean like seeding, I'm thinking influencer marketing. So to me, it sounds like you guys were early on on the influencer marketing train. We were, and we just didn't have the budget also to pay a lot of them. And so we were very open and honest and said, you know, we'd love for you to try it. No pressure. Like we didn't say, Hey, make sure you tag us or post about us. We just were really specific in who we targeted thinking about how do they align from a values perspective? How much cooking do they do? What type of content are they actually putting out there? So it was less about the numbers and the notoriety or, you know, how big some of these people were. And it was more like, could we see material in their space and could we see them using it on a regular basis? And because of that, a lot of them just started using it and regularly using it in their content. And people like Athena Calderon, Isoon, who's been one of our earliest supporters to Jeanette Ogden, Shut the Kale Up, who is based in LA. And she, again, just started using this stuff and we started seeing our products popping up more and more. Uh, and I think for us, what we realized was, gosh, this is a relationships business. It's not just about, you know, sowing your seeds like and spreading them far and wide. It's really about going deep and being able to develop relationships with these online individuals who are great storytellers. And so instead of us spending all the money trying to create the story, why can't we just enlist their help and talk to them and say, like, what are you working on? Um, how can we help? What could we do together? And I think it was maybe that spirit of early on collaboration that allowed us to have strong relationships and I think trusted relationships. And, you know, recently we just launched a little collaboration with Shut the Kill Up and we can actually go back and show just how using it and her audience and her community knows that she's been talking about us forever. And so to be able to kind of bring all these things full circle, I think really has just shown that. Yeah, the, the early investment into relationships, I think, was able to offset perhaps some of the challenges of not being able to figure out paid marketing really early on. It really is about relationships, especially in the influencer marketing game. 
think a lot of people assume that, oh, just one post should do, right? <laughs> but I think in marketing in general, you need a lot of different posts for it to be successful. And you're right, that long-term relationship really matters. I used to speak about influencer marketing a lot. <laughs> so I, I had a whole presentation and one of the big key things was long-term relationships with the influencers. Yes, it's never a one and done. So you want to choose wisely and um, invest that time in the relationship. Like you said, that's awesome. So how has fundraising gone? You guys have grown a lot. There's some competitors in the space. Yes. How has it gone? Yeah. So it has been, it ebbs and flows. And I think that's where, how we think about fundraising capital is kind of infusing capital at the right moment and not being wholly reliant on it. And and we learned that pretty early on. You know, we did a pre-seed round, then we did a seed round. And I found myself as a founder, like way too much time was being spent on fundraising. And I knew that my time would be best spent like just building the business and really thinking about where to go next and what product category to to innovate in, um, what relationships do we want to continue to build. And so the only way we could take ourselves off of the fundraising hamster wheel was to focus on profitability. And we're like, we want to actually, we want to change the narrative a little bit. We don't want to have to just fundraise so that we can go do all these splashy things. We want to actually use, you know, the fundraising for really specific needs, whether it's building the team or starting to do a little bit more investing behind the brand. And then we just challenged ourselves to take everything else down to like as scrappy as possible. And by 2020, we broke even. And I think what it allowed us to do was have a bit more confidence in, okay, there's a real business here. We can get the numbers to work. Now let's just figure out, let's have a little fun by putting some more investment behind it and figuring out if we pour a little bit of water over here, what seeds will sprout and what will we see um, grow. And that's really been our philosophy in fundraising is just bringing in the capital when we feel like there's a real inherent need for it, you know, product expansion, going into different channels. Like we recently just launched across the country at Nordstrom. So being mindful about the deployment of capital as opposed to just sitting on capital, you know, and I think uh, sometimes there's, there's this notion of have a lot of dry powder, you know, just like have so much stuff that you can do all the stuff with. And I always think, well, if you have a lot of stuff, you sometimes don't really know what's working and what's not working. Cause you're just, you're spending the money. You're adding team members. Cause there's a lot of pressure to grow your team quickly. And then you're deploying the capital as quickly as possible because you need to make a return on that capital. And I just feel like sometimes the speed of growth really undermines the quality of growth. And that's something that we just knew we didn't want to do. And so, yeah, I, I, I always think I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with fundraising, but it's only because it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. And uh, sometimes I think it just, you make bad decisions when when you actually just try to deploy that much capital. Yeah. Some people, I think with lots of cash, they're like lots of more things we can test and do. And, but yeah, I can see what you're saying. So what are some things that investors said that like, how do you filter for the right investor? First and foremost, kind of like, do we have similar philosophies of what success looks like? Right. So if they're talking about these big wild aspirations, but don't recognize that we kind of want to take a little bit more of a sustainable growth approach and not necessarily spending a ton of money just to, 
to spark that growth. I think that was definitely something that we would filter out for is, you know, just making sure there's alignment on like, what do we think success looks like and how, what would make us happy? What would make them happy? I think secondly, do they seem like they have their own thoughts? That's a very harsh statement, but sometimes I feel like the the whole world of investors can be very, it's like swarm ball and something, you know, hits and all of a sudden, like they all move in one direction. And I think what I love our investors for is they, they have a thesis and they stick to it, you know, and they, they of course make adjustments because everyone's taking in more inputs, but they're not just blindly kind of jumping from place to place to place to place. Like they really feel as though they have a perspective on what good investments look like and they follow through on that. And I think that's something that I always respect. And typically that's where the alignment happens. And I think the last thing is just like, are they human? Like, can I actually sit and have, you know, like I'm sharing a meal with them. Can we talk about life outside of work? You know, is there something that feels again, relationship driven? Because then I think there's just that element of trust that one can build. I feel like I've had to kiss a lot of frogs through the process, but we found, you know, some investors that, that have really, I think, um, been great for us. Definitely lots of frogs, lots of lizards, alligators, and yeah. <laughs> a lot of kissing reptiles. <laughs> What's been one of the biggest challenges that you didn't really expect in building a brand? Your first time founder. So I'm curious your thoughts, you know, as you've been on this journey, what's something you just didn't expect to happen when you were going out on this journey in the beginning and now looking back, you're like, yeah, I didn't see that one coming. I mean, I obviously no one saw the pandemic coming. <laughs> um, so I think for me, it was less about the the pandemic and more what it calls for you in, in a leader, you know, you just, I, I think one of the things that I didn't expect was just that responsibility of taking care of our employees, taking care of people that we work with, whether they're freelancers or agency partners. And I think taking that res- responsibility seriously. So, you know, the pandemic hits and everyone's freaking out and and trying to figure out. I remember investors calling being like, what's your cash position like? Oh my gosh. Like, you know, everyone's so scared that, you know, the, the warehouses aren't going to be sent out and all business is going to stop operations and stop spending any money whatsoever. And who can you let go of? And, you know, there was just like this moment of, I remember like, it felt like the house was on fire and everyone's screaming and throwing out different bits of information because no one knew anything. And I just remember really quickly being like transparency and we, we honesty, right? Like we always communicate to our employees and to our agency partners and we kind of protect at all costs because during this time frame, like I just didn't want to feel like we were abandoning people and just leaving people to kind of fend for themselves or, you know, we, we try to do everything. I mean, we, took lower salaries to try and cover costs of just, you know, making sure that like everyone was going to be in a good position. And I think those are just some of the things you don't realize, like there's a lot of sexiness sometimes to being a founder, but there's so many hard decisions that you have to make because these are, it's people's livelihood. Like you're really, we take that responsibility so seriously. And, you know, and I think that was something that I just would have never expected. And, you know, thankfully, we happened to be in a category that did very well during the pandemic because everyone was home cooking. And so we were able to, I think, find our way through it. But I think it instilled just a lot of trust within the team of them knowing like, 
they're looking out for us. They're not, they're not trying to just like cover themselves and kind of run, run for cover, I should say. And I think that allowed us to all kind of bond and grow even closer as a team, because there was that sense of we're, we're in this together um, and really showing them through these unforeseen times, like how we could do it via action. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. I think you're right. Entrepreneurship has always been kind of glamorized, but even more so today. And especially with consumer brands, it's like, oh my gosh, how cool you get to think about and design a cool brand and a product. And that must be so fun, you know, and it is fun, I'm sure in the beginning. And then before you know it, you have a bunch of employees and you're up against the wall during a global pandemic. (laughs) And that's not what you think about when you're thinking about setting out to create something new in the world. Totally. (laughs) Totally. Uh, So you're right. Lots of really hard decisions to be made. And that's the tough part about being CEO. But what are some limiting beliefs that you've had to overcome to get to where you are? Have you ever had moments of doubt? Oh, yes. I mean, a lot. (laughs) I think I would be not human if, if there weren't any. Yeah. You know, I think everyone probably talks about imposter syndrome. Like that's something that that one feels, uh, I think for me, it's probably also been like, I'm, I'm not enough. Right. And, and I think sometimes that stems from when you are in this consumer space, there's, I think this notion that like, you have to be the brand personified, right. And you are the face and the personality and all things of the brand point back to you as the founder. And that's scary because I mean, I think that's why you hear so many stories, especially of like female founders, which is so unfair because it is just a real burden that I think we sometimes shoulder of like, not only do we have to build an amazing business, but we have to look good and pretend like life is grand while we're doing it so that you follow me on Instagram and you think it's really cool to do what I do. And I think that's something that like, I struggled with a lot early on because I'm like, I don't, I have a young child, like I don't want to be that exposed out there. Like how much of myself do I need to really put out there in order for people to like my brand or my business? Like, and then I think that settled into like, um, what if I'm just not enough? What if I'm not enough to like, to carry the brand flag like I need to? And I think there was the realization of like people, I mean, sometimes people are like, oh, hey, you're Eunice, you know, you're the co-founder material. Most of the times people are just like, I love your stuff. <laughs> like, you know, and it, and I, and nothing makes me happier than when it's like, they just love the experience they have in the kitchen when they're using material. And that's what it's about. It has nothing to do with like where I'm going, what I'm wearing. Right. It's just, they're like, God, like I had really dull knives. And now when I bought yours, like, it's just, it makes me so much happier doing, you know, silly prep work in the kitchen. And so I think overcoming a little bit of that, um, was important early on. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's just- interesting. You say that by the way, cause I think that you're right. There's a huge pressure. I think it's starting anything. I'm a podcaster and I, I probably should be on Instagram a hell of a lot more. I mean, I don't even, I have like, I'm just not a social media person. Like I just don't care for it. And I feel, it makes me feel bad. I feel like yeah. I'm supposed to do it. You know, right, right. it's part of building the brand. It's part of letting people get to know who I am. I mean, it, but it's exhausting. It's like, how much of myself do I have to be exposing all the time here? Totally. And I'm sure it's hard for you too, because I mean, you are, podcasting is inherently like an intimate thing, right? Like you're talking to other people and I think understanding what you want to share and put out there and holding 
clinging to those things where you're like, no, this is for me. Like this is, this is what restores me. This is what makes me like able to do all these other things and protecting and guarding that with like your life almost. Like, I feel like that's the balance that I've had to try and figure out like what, what, what do I share and what do I not share? This, it is challenging. The kid thing too on social media is challenging for me because I'm like, I don't want to take away this decision or make that decision for my kid. What if they don't want to have baby pictures of themselves all over the internet when they're an adult? Like I didn't have to deal with that when I was, you know, there's no pictures of me unless my mom posted on Facebook. But, you know, back in the day, they weren't like uploading every day new pictures of me as a kid. And I feel like, I don't know if I want to, what if he doesn't want those pictures out there? And then I did it for myself, you know, and he's, you know, I don't know. I just feel like that's not a choice I should make for him. And I know a lot of parents do it and I love seeing pictures of families and I love it. And so part of me is also like, ah, it's, I'm also wish I could be sharing more of my life and my family and stuff, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just so undecided about it that I just haven't done it at all. Yeah. And like, I think the best lesson I've learned in entrepreneurship so far, by the way, is like, you can also always change your mind, right? Like, because sometimes I think you can think one thing of like, oh, I'm never gonna, I, I'm never gonna do that, right? And then that things change, and you're like, actually, I'm okay with it now. And being okay with changing your mind is actually something that I think has helped us enter into new categories. That I was like, oh, we're never gonna do tabletop, and now, lo and behold, like we have ceramics and we love it. And it's an amazing category for us. And we're going deeper into it this holiday. I mean, it's just like silly things like that to the kids stuff. Like we just launched a kid's collection. And I remember talking to my older daughter, who's now seven. And I'm like, you know, you guys really did inspire this. We did a ton of cooking during the pandemic together. Do you want to do stuff? Like, is this something that interests you? And she's like, oh my God, yes. Right. So her actively making the decision to say, yes, I would love to, and her having fun. And the second it becomes not fun for her anymore, she's not doing it, right? Like it's not something that is forced upon her by any means. But I think it's it's knowing that like, you know, things change and yeah, just it's it's a tough, it's a tough thing figuring out how much you want to share of yourself out there with God knows who. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for all I know, my kid might grow up and be like, mom, you didn't create an account for me. I could have like you know, a couple <laughs> thousand followers by now, you know? <laughs> I know. You're like, oh my God. <laughs> Maybe I'll post tomorrow. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so before we wrap up here, what other advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs and what's next for material? I always say like, tomorrow's another day. Like, it's so easy to be like, God, like, this didn't go right today, you know, oh my God, like that sucked or, you know, and there's so many highs and lows like entrepreneur and they all happen within one day, by the way, it's not like you go through like a massive high period. And then all of a sudden, like two weeks go and it's a total low period. Maybe that happens. But for me, I found it's like you get great news and then bad news like right at the exact same time. And I think what that's helped me really understand is just tomorrow's another day. Like dust yourself off, you pick yourself back up. And when you love what you do and you love the people you're doing it with, like you're able to roll through it. And that's probably the other second thing I would say is like, choose wisely with who you, who you do this with, whether it's, you know, again, like a business partner, whether it's your team, your investors, uh, other founders, like other people who are doing this too, like seek out their not only advice, but like be in relationship with them. 
I have a great group of founders where I can text them at any given point in time and be like, what do I do? This just happened. Or like, oh my God, can you tell me how much you're spending here? Like, am I spending too much? Like it's those simple questions that you turn over in your head when you have an outlet and someone else who's like right there with you, who's who you trust and that, you know, um, they're kind of going through similar things at the same time. It just lightens the load so much by being in community with other people that are doing this too. And I think that's been quite honestly, one of the most important things in my own sanity during this process. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I started the show because as an entrepreneur myself, talking to other founders was always the most valuable conversations. And whenever shit hit the fan or something really bad happened, I could talk to a founder and probably like most likely their stories were 10 times worse than what I was experiencing. And it always makes you feel a little better that you're like, oh, well, I guess it's not that bad. Right. If she was able to get through that, I can easily get through this one. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's just, it does. It makes it, it it just makes some of those burdens easier to bear because you know, you're not alone. Yes. Yes. You're not alone. So what's next for material? We have so many things. (laughs) Uh, I think for us, you know, we're, we're really, filling out some of these categories that we've started to venture into. And I think bringing to life this notion of like, we can be this one-stop shop for today's modern cook. Like you don't have to go to all these other places. You can actually really find an assortment and a collection of things that suit your needs and your tastes right at material. And so we're launching new categories before the end of the year. We're continuing, I think, to explore more of, you know, we we just launched with Nordstrom, but where else can we be interacting with customers in person? Because now as the world is opening back up, we just, we love being again, like in community with our customers and potential customers. So doing more and stuff, uh, doing more things in person, I should say. And then, yeah, really just like continuing to, to build out the team. And I, I'm so excited. I mean, I love what we do, but I also love how we're doing it. So I just want to keep, keep going as long as we can. Thank you so much, Eunice, for sharing your awesome story and building material. Thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.